This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. I am Jay Period, also known as the Mixtape Assassin in some circles. I'm a DJ, producer, known for creating kind of audio, I would say musical documentaries, I guess, with different artists. And um, that has expanded out and carried me into other fields such as production and performing and so forth. I listed those two first because for me, I think that there's been one sort of recurring theme through my entire experience with music, which is always gravitating towards things that have some kind of meaning behind them. And the message in particular was sort of the first song I remember in my experience where there really was meaning and there was social commentary and there was poetry and all of it obviously set to a a dope beat. And I think that that song really catapulted me into hip hop. And I discovered hip hop originally, I should say, through the movie Beat Street um, when I was a, a little kid. And that film ends with Beat Street Breakdown, which is a kind of big finale. And in the movie, you hear, I think, one verse of the song, which is pretty much about the characters in the movie. But then in the second verse, Melly Mel goes on once again to kind of make this sort of sweeping commentary about the state of the world and does it in the illest and smartest way that it just was one of those verses that you know stayed with me to this day i think i could probably recite the majority of that verse uh. a newspaper burns in the sand and the headlines say man destroys man extra extra read all the bad news on the wall a piece that everybody will lose the rise and fall the last great empire the sound of the whole world caught on fire the ruthless struggle the desperate gamble the game that left the whole world I remember in the earliest days, I thought Grandmaster Flash was Melly Mel because his name, you know, was the artist's name on the record. And it wasn't until Beat Street that I realized that Melly Mel was actually a different guy. And so with him, obviously, you know, he has such like a forceful presence and, and a voice that that was the first thing that I remember noticing, you know, the, uh, you know, like that, that, <laughs> that was like the illest way to punctuate what you were saying. And that was like a signature Melly Mel thing. And with him, I think it was his voice, his presence, but also I'd never heard anybody, especially not somebody from literally like a foreign world to me, you know, at that point in time, because I grew up in LA and this was, you know, the Bronx in New York City. I'd never heard anybody put words together in a way that flowed and, and sounded so good, but also meant so much. And so to be perfectly honest, I don't even remember anybody else on the message. Like I only remember Melly Mel. And maybe that's why I put that and Beat Street Breakdown, because like to me, that was sort of the continuation of Melly Mel's verse on the message. Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage, you know, they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out. I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> 
like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. When I was a kid, my father was a folk musician, and my mom listened to mostly classic rock. And I used to try to explain to them my love of this music, which kind of came from a very different world and described a very different world, but spoke to me. And those songs in particular, I remember writing down all the lyrics, sort of transcribing and giving them to my dad, who was a teacher, to kind of show him that this music had a deeper meaning. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails, used to be a gag. Such a dash to tango, skip the life and tango, was her gone prince to seem to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she could tell the stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so did it, she had to get I think less so than my mom, <laughs> but I definitely think he did need some, con it wasn't necessarily convincing, it was more like that was just the way that we communicated. My dad and I was through kind of uncovering truths, I guess, and showing and sharing them with each other. So this was, you know, me kind of showing him this world that I found exciting and interesting and him, you know, not really knowing anything about it was, I think in the beginning he was kind of, I remember he used to say something which stuck with me, which was, do you think that they intended to mean all the meanings that you're extracting from it? And I, I do in the case of Melly Mel and KRS and Chuck D and guys like that, obviously, but maybe there were some people who strung words together in a clever, ill way. And it wasn't sort of as powerful or meaningful, but that was his kind of his hesitation was, you know, is this really as significant as you think it is? And I think over the years, he's definitely come around. And I mean, at this point, he listens to every one of the mixtapes that I've created in every song and, you know, really appreciates all the layers of meaning that are in there. I think that for my dad as a teacher and someone that I learned to explore, I guess, from him, I think that once he sort of discovered these other layers of meaning in there, he got into it as well. And I think that that led to him really kind of pursuing and listening to the things that I created and, and what was exciting to me when this became a, a profession for me. I check it. They don't expect me on this beat. The thunder on the street. But I never turn the cheek. Surrender or retreat. You can bet that I am strong. Trying to write what is wrong they say it won't be long keep on singing your song but hey yo you need a single single to make a mingle something that's kind of simple you know i think that in my own work later on that's become a really important thing is layering in levels of meaning and significance and things that are true for people regardless of where they come from in the world their cultural or socioeconomic experience just trying to create sort of layers of, of truth and meaning that resonate with people and using music as a you know a medium for that in the same way that it affected me when i was a kid in that way so i think that those two songs in particular became a real foundation for my appreciation of hip-hop because of that meaning that was there. But obviously, the meaning was carried on this dope beat and through this incredible poet and, you know, with a, a great voice and all of those things, you know, were all part of what made it sort of exciting. But the extra layers sort of on top of that was what really drew me in, I think, to the music. And I guess like, you know, the irony of me growing up in LA, you know, as a sort of professional DJ that has lived in New York my, my whole career is that I was in LA, but I always gravitated towards New York hip hop. Back then I would listen to, you know, it was K-Day and this, this show called the Fly ID show. It was this like late night pirate radio thing, I think, that would have all this New York hip hop. And for whatever reason, that world became the thing that I was obsessed with and, and was fascinated with. And probably because visually the movie Beat Street was my first sort of introduction to that universe. So, you know, it was breakdancing. I, I mean, I was in LA growing up. One of my best friends lived in Watts and I would go to Watts, stay at his house and we would go to the park and, you know, breakdance in the park on a cardboard box and like really do it. <laughs> and so being in LA, trying to emulate these sort of things I saw in this faraway place, New York City, was definitely significant for me. But 
I also soaked up all of the Los Angeles hip hop as it was starting to emerge from early world class wrecking crew, you know, and Dre to the LA Dream Team and guys like that. And, and it was sort of the irony was that being in LA back then, when NWA came out and DOC and those type of guys, I wasn't really into it because I was into New York hip hop. And it was only later on that I started to appreciate West Coast hip hop. And when I ended up moving to New York, I brought that knowledge of West Coast hip hop with me. And it kind of separated me out from a lot of other New York DJs because their repertoire did not include all the stuff that I knew about from growing up in LA and then going to college in the Bay Area at Stanford and getting exposed to Bay Area hip hop as well. So, you know, I definitely think that my upbringing in Los Angeles, it made New York feel far away and this, you know, thing that was off in the clouds, but it made me really passionate and appreciate the music because, you know, I guess it, I wasn't surrounded by it and, and so I didn't take it for granted in that way like I did with West Coast hip hop in those early years. I don't know that I could really explain from an early age why. I mean, I, I don't know that I sort of had an understanding of Sonics in that way when I was a kid. I think that there's just certain music that moves you and it's hard to explain what it is about it. I mean, I definitely think that hearing folk music from my dad or, or the Beatles or Rolling Stones and, and then, you know, hearing hip hop, obviously the beat is what drove the music. And so it was kind of like best of both worlds. With good hip hop, you would get the emotion of good music, but the force and the impact of a hard beat. And I think that that combination definitely affected me. I mean, that's what makes hip hop different from everything else. Like I often describe hip hop as a kind of umbrella genre where I say that to say that it includes all other genres, that hip hop is the only genre which basically takes from and filters every other genre and turns it into something new. And I don't know that I had an, an understanding of it like that back then, but it's definitely been something that is a kind of calling card now with the music I make or what I have learned about as a DJ or what I play. It's kind of like, look, here's this thing that can go to Nigeria or Somalia or France or anywhere, Brazil, you know, jazz, classical, what have you, and you flip it and suddenly it becomes much more compelling as hip hop, at least to me. Growing up, half of my friends were white or Jewish and the other half were black. So it wasn't necessarily a racial or ethnic thing, but I definitely think that there was an element of the gritty street, graffiti on the walls, like trains and concrete and all those things. Like I didn't see any of that in LA. <laughs> that wasn't in my world. So that's definitely something that was foreign to me. And again, all of my memories flash back to Beach Street and seeing these guys, you know, kind of like in there. I mean, even like winter, when I moved to New York, I was so excited to get to wear Timberlands and a puffy vest. Because <laughs> like these were things that were in the music and in the culture, but not things that I experienced in my life because I wasn't in that type of place. So I think it was all of those things. I mean, it was also as a kid, you're seeing a world that looks like it's as harsh as it probably is. And so it's very foreign from your experience in all of those ways. But I also remember as far as the ethnic or cultural or racial component of it, I remember I never had a feeling like I didn't belong because of the color of my skin or my religious upbringing or any of those things. Like I remember in Beat Street, like there were sort of all shades and all, of all colors. And it just seemed to me like a thing that kind of included everybody. And I think that, you know, Universal Zulu Nation and those type of organizations felt to me inclusive. It was like anybody can be here as long as they understand and they appreciate the culture. So in that way, I never, I never felt sort of or thought about the, any difference between me and people I saw making this music. All ten everything, all brown man, sound man, sit down man, sit down man, all brown skin, 
young melanin, melly mel melding, malleable my metals, ish, all tan man, man tan more land, demand more land, more ends more land. I mean, obviously in LA, there are sort of physical separations of, and generally divided along socioeconomic or cultural or ethnic or whatever, you know, however you want to sort of describe it. But I don't know how to describe it or like what it was, but for me, things that I'm interested in eradicate any fear or hesitancy that I might have towards approaching those worlds. And so I kind of would actively seek out some of those experiences in high school when I got old enough to actually explore the city. I also, I had friends of a lot of different walks of life. So I got to see through my friends all different kinds of experiences and, and not for nothing, but like the way I looked, I was confused often for different races or ethnicities. You know, some places I went, they thought I was Middle Eastern or Arab and some places they thought I was part black or this or that. And based on the way I dressed, if I was in a convenience store and my black friends were getting followed, like I was getting followed as well because I was with them and looked like them. And so it's not like I experienced that side of it, but I got enough of a window into it that it made me think about it and try and understand why why those dynamics existed, I guess. And then that became something that I was obsessed with and studied intellectually as well. So when I got to Stanford, this was what I studied, culture, different cultures and cultural psychology and sociology and all of these different kinds of things. And I don't know that it had to do with LA necessarily. I just think I grew up in an environment where exploring was good and seeking different things out was good. I wasn't giving warnings from my parents, like, don't do that, that could be dangerous. It was sort of like, I don't know, they trusted me or they knew I wasn't gonna get into anything stupid, so. Skills, top rank, point blank, we vital. Spit flow, rip shows, peep the recital. Skills, snap, you feel it when we drop those. Hot beats, stop foes, killing it, we got those. Skills, hits, the music that the street loves. Each thug is now repping this with deep love. Skills, gangstar, duel it again, rule it again. Watch as we do it again. It's the true and living with a youthful vengeance. And I'm a judge, Mathis, your ass, give you a crucial sentence. You need at least 12 jewels. As I kind of entered hip-hop as a DJ, one of the things I, I really noticed was that hip-hop is kind of, or at least it was, a meritocracy. It's sort of like, if you're dope and you have skills, that's all that matters. And no one's really judging you on any other basis. It's like, you fit in on the basis of your understanding, and your understanding is played out in how good you are. <laughs> so... I think that's also been that's also been something that I've noticed over the years. But I was always interested in cultural and, and racial and, and other kinds of issues for my whole life. And maybe probably hip hop has something to do with that. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not really sure why. Straight out the dungeons of rap, but fake don't make it back. I don't know how to start. The next song that has really had a, a powerful impact on me would be Nas, um, New York State of Mind. There's many, many reasons for it. I think that if my interest in New York started with Beat Street and my obsession with hip hop, I think by the time I arrived to the you know Nas Illmatic era of hip hop is when I really, I think, wanted to be closer to it. One of the things that made me want to move to New York was that all the music that I loved came from New York. And, and particularly, I think that what Nas was doing at that time, what Mob Deep was doing at that time, there was a gritty, grimy quality to it that just felt like, I guess, what those images of, of New York that I had in my mind looked like. And so that song, I, I just remember, both from the standpoint of, of New York, but also, to this day, you drop that beat anywhere, anytime, and people turn their heads. It's just like a timeless classic that never, ever gets old. And I think that this was the period of time where you could put a N.W.A. or a Snoop or Dre up against Biggie or Nas. It was kind of like music had sort of moved from New York to the West Coast a little bit. And then when Nas came and Biggie came, it kind of moved back to the East Coast. So that just for me was kind of a, a pivotal moment. And that beat is one of my favorite beats of all time. And, and then on top of it, obviously, you have this young kid who is a poet like <laughs> you never seen anything before like that. You know, obviously there's Rakim and there's plenty of there's Big Daddy Kane. There's MCs that were 
amazing to me and were my favorites. Kane particularly was one of my favorites because he could just do anything. But there was something about Nas that made him instantly become my favorite MC as soon as Illmatic came out. And that song is my favorite song off that album. My raps are trifle. I shoot slugs from my brain just like a rifle. Stampede the stage. I leave the microphone split. Play Mr. Tuffy while I'm on some pretty tone ish. Verbal assassin. My architect pleases. When I was 12, I went to hell for snuffing Jesus. Nasty Nas is a rebel to America. Police murderer. I'm causing hysteria. My troops roll up with a strange force. I was trapped in a cage and lit out by the main source. Swimming and women like a lifeguard. Put on a bulletproof. I can strike hard. Man, I mean, I think that my first experience, because I was a, a fanatical reader of The Source, and so I learned about Nas through The Source. And it was pretty much, I think, because Live at the Barbecue, his verse on Live at the Barbecue, this may not be correct, but I remember that verse being the hip-hop quotable at some point in time. And so that's when I first discovered Nas. And I probably would have heard It Ain't Hard to Tell before New York State of Mind because that was the first single that came out. But I just remember when I heard It Ain't Hard to Tell that that kind of, again, made me go, who is this guy? And he's amazing. And it was one of those things where I remember two albums where I was literally skip class, went to the warehouse, which was a record store chain back then and i was standing outside of the warehouse at whatever 750 you know nine <laughs> waiting to get in and get this album and so i literally got illmatic the day it came out the second i could get into the record store and i don't think i stopped playing it for like three weeks <laughs> it just took over my stereo Rappers are monkey flipping with the funky rhythm. I be kicking, musician, inflicting composition of pain. I'm like Scarface sniffing death, holding the M16. See with the pen, I'm extreme. Now, bullet holes left in my peak holes. I'm suited up with street clothes. Hand me a nine and out defeat foes. Y'all know my steel with or without the airplay. I keep some E and J sitting bent up in the stairway. I either on the corner betting grants with the CeeLo champs. Laughing at base heads, trying to sell some broken amps. G-Packs get off quick forever. A story I don't know if I've ever really told before, but the first hip-hop show that I ever went to was Nas. And it was Nas at literally a, I want to say like 800 square foot bar on the 3rd Street Promenade in Santa Monica, where I was probably maybe five feet away from him. It was like, there was no stage. It was like they'd put the microphone set up and the DJ set up in the corner by the glass, the front glass, and then a, a little circle, half circle of monitors for him right in front of him. And then everyone just standing on the other side of it because no one knew who he was. So it was probably his first run on the West Coast and I got to see him live. And I just remember standing there like four or five feet away from him, just like in awe. <laughs> And the irony is that, like a lot of things in, in my, I guess, career, Nas kind of launched my DJ career in a certain sense because the best of Nas mixtape, which I did, came from uh, me getting invited for, I think it was Godson at the time. And it was something that took place at Sony Records and it was like a bunch of college radio DJs. And one of my friends, a DJ named G Brown, who kind of taught me the mixtape game, he had invited me to go to this listening session. And I was like, this is gonna be the only time I'd ever actually get to be in the room with him, you know, as an adult and as a DJ. I went to this listening session and I was sitting there there was a rumor that he may actually show up and sure enough he shows up and it was right after ether he had obviously won that battle with jay-z i would argue anybody on that point <laughs> and he actually shows up and, and all these college radio djs start interviewing him and i had brought my little mini disc recorder from him to get a drop basically just a cosign for me to make a mixtape and it was while i was sitting there they were interviewing him i put my mini disc down 
on the table to record the whole interview. And it was while I was sitting there that I had this idea of mixing the interview with the music and making this sort of new kind of best of mixtape. And I went up to him at the end of that and asked for a drop. I just said, you know, I want to do a best of Nas. Can I get a drop? My name is Jay Period. He gave me the drop. And that was the first seed that led to the whole series of mixtapes that I've done with all these artists. The production to me is what really makes that song have its impact. I think that you know Nas obviously spits an incredible verse. It's also a really long verse, his, you know, the first verse of that song. But because the beat is so dope, it doesn't feel like it's a long verse. And again, with that instrumental, you can just let that rock. I searched as a DJ for years upon years to try to get my hands on that instrumental. And it does not exist. Like it was never, ever released. It was only when I was DJing for The Roots and for Black Thought uh, maybe four or five years ago, and I was doing a show with Black Thought at the Roots Picnic. Nas was headlining the Roots Picnic. Black Thought and I had gone on earlier in the day, and then the Roots were going on, obviously, as the finale with Nas. About an hour before the show, Questlove comes over to me, and he's like, look, I need your help. Can you DJ the Nas performance? And I was like, yes. It was probably the quickest yes I ever said. And not knowing at all what that entailed, I was just like, the answer was yes, whatever. And one of the happy byproducts of me DJing for Nas at that show was that I got the New York State of Mind instrumental. So I then held on to it very, very tightly until I brought it to Black Thought and said, would you ever do something on this? And he was like, cool, let's do it. So I was able to record my own version of New York State of Mind with Black Thought also delivering a ridiculous verse. but. It was because I had been so obsessed with that beat. And Primo was obviously one of my biggest influences and one of my favorite producers. So my love for that track still to this day, is, I, I wouldn't even say that's the best premiere beat. I, I might even say that's one of the best beats ever by anybody. So, and, and I say that because again, you drop that track still now and anybody that loves hip-hop will turn their head and say what is that <laughs> if they don't already know don't even ask how the high feel ask how do i feel probably how the sky feel jokers is coming sideways like a side feel the grapes of wrath intertwined like a vine still physically i'm ill walking through a minefield with a straw sticking out a molotov cocktail 21 grams of soul on a rock scale probably burn like flaming coals on a hot grill yo if the afterlife is absolutely not real then you diminish and you finish it's a done deal beyond that my heartbeat is like a drum still it's like i'm living on a run with the gun still we'll bring the hero back he to take care of that because his words get it against birds and kerouac going to stanford when i first got there i had i think two majors one was in african-american studies and the other was in jewish studies and what ended up happening was that i found the curriculum for either or both of those insufficient and so i found out that there was a program at stanford called the individually designed major program where you could sort of pick and choose a course load based on whatever field of interest you had so long as you could defend that before a committee and you know write a sort of explanation of why you thought all these classes should go together and so forth. So I, I actually did that and created a major that was called Identity and the Multicultural Mind. And this is not to date myself, but this is back well before anybody ever talked about diversity. So it was something that was a passion and an interest to me sort of throughout. I got grants from Stanford to go and study different cultural issues and I remember you know sort of interviewing 
all of my friends of all different ethnicities about their thoughts of the use of the N-word and why, you know, what were the dynamics surrounding that. Things like that, because my black friends would say that to me, but I obviously never felt comfortable saying it back. And so I thought, well, there's a, a really interesting thing happening there. So let me study it. And again, like anything that I was interested in, I found a way to make it part of my sort of academic career. And then separate from that, when I was in high school, because of my just crazy fanatical love of hip hop, I accumulated a really, really incredible collection of CDs. And I wasn't on turntables back then. Like I had my little Fisher Price turntable when I was a kid and my book and record sets that I would scratch until I destroyed them. But I wasn't really in my basement learning to DJ at 14 like A-Track or somebody. I was outside playing ball and skateboarding around L.A. But I loved this music. And so when I got to Stanford, I remember there was a freshman party where they were like, well, we need a DJ. And I just instantly raised my hand and volunteered to do it. And it was funny because I literally DJed my first party with two CD disc men and a mixer. And it was because I knew my music so well that... I could pull that off. And what happened was there was somebody that attended that party that happened to be the president of the, I think the Black Fraternity and Sorority Association at Stanford. And he asked me to DJ an off-campus party that he was doing a couple weeks later. And I did that and thus launched my DJ career because every Black Fraternity and Sorority member at Stanford was at this party. And I then got hired for the next four years to do all the alpha parties at Stanford and all the Delta sorority parties and so forth and so on. And it would always be this funny thing where somebody would come up to the DJ booth and they first they'd see me and they'd be like, wait, you're doing this? And I would kind of chuckle and then they would look down and they'd see two disc men and a mixer and they'd be like, and with that? <laughs> but I knew my shit and I had good taste and I was an excellent selector and I rocked every one of those parties and kept getting hired. So I knew I rocked those parties. Do what you like. Talk how you like. Drink what you like. Grab who you like, feel what you like, eat what you like, scratch where you like, itch if you like. It was maybe my sophomore year that my roommate had actual Technique 1200s, and I would sneak in and teach myself, and that's how I, I learned to DJ properly. So by the time I left Stanford, I was like, okay, it's time for me to really learn how to do this. And I think that was the thing that made me want to move to New York and kind of try my hand at this. So, I mean, obviously there are a couple of other factors in, in that decision, but that was kind of how it, it took shape early on. I remember my mom telling me when she was a kid that she used to like sneak out of the house and go up to Harlem to the Apollo Theater and see shows like Chuck Berry and stuff like that because she was from South Orange, New Jersey and uh, Newark. I think my dad... I never got any of those stories from him because he, he grew up in a different kind of place. But I don't remember ever having explicit conversations with them about these issues. I just remember it being a thing of I was never taught that there was any fundamental difference, you know, between anybody. And I think that it led to a couple sort of funny stories as well, like the fact that my other sort of musical obsession as a kid was Prince. I remember also sort of a very pivotal moment in my kind of, I guess, racial understanding of the world. I must have been in maybe second grade or something. My sister was with a bunch of her friends and they were talking about how Prince was going to be performing at the BET Awards. And I, and I said, what does BET stand for? And they said, Black Entertainment Television. I remember looking at my sister and kind of saying, well, well I don't understand. Like, why would Prince perform at the Black Entertainment Television Awards? You know, he looks like me. And all of her friends just burst out laughing at me. But it was like this thing where even as they were laughing at me, I still didn't understand why they were laughing at me because it didn't make any sense to me. I was like, well, his skin color is pretty much the same as mine. So like, I don't get it. And I often say that, you know, me kind of not getting it was the first sort of seed in my continuing to not get it and refusing to get it in terms of the way the world kind of divides people up versus the way that 
to me, it was logical to not divide people up or to not understand why they would be divided up in those ways. And I kind of have remained stubborn about that and never really kind of understanding it, quote unquote, because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, I guess. And, and maybe that's another reason why it became something that I was so interested in intellectually and, and why I studied it. The final pick is a three-way tie only because each of these albums influenced me so much and that would be Midnight Marauders, De La Soul is Dead and Death Certificate, which is, you know, Ice Cube. For those that don't know, Honey, check it out, you got me mesmerized. With your black hair and your fat styles. Street poetry is my everyday. But yo, I gotta stop when you drop my weight. If I was working at the club, you would not pay. Hey, yo, my man Fife Diggy, he got something to say. Sonically and style-wise, I think that Midnight Marauders and De La Soul is Dead probably had the biggest impact on me as a DJ. But, well, really what all three of these albums have in common is that there's a narrative. In the case of Midnight Marauders, there's these recurring, the voice, you know, of the, of the tour guide that appears throughout and kind of ties it together. In the case of De La Soul is Dead, there's this narrative about this kid who finds the album in the trash and then and it gets to the end and it, it just becomes like a thing that holds the album together and death certificate where it's divided into the life side and the death side and you know it's very conceptual and what he talks about also in terms of Los Angeles was very familiar to me and by the time I was the age I was when Death Certificate came out. I think I was more aware of L.A. hip hop and into L.A. hip hop. But, you know, I think altogether the thing that these albums gave me was this idea that an album is an experience. It's a listening experience. And that's been something in my own work, which is more than central. That's like the defining characteristic of what I create. There's a story to it. There's a narrative arc, I guess, to it, and that the music, obviously, on all three of those, track for track, is amazing, and that's what makes you listen to the whole thing, but the extra bonus is that when you listen to the whole thing, you get these additional pearls of wisdom from the tour guide on Midnight Marauders or on De La Soul is Dead, the way that there's a story that unfolds through the course of the album. And even within individual songs, like a Biddy's in the BK Lounge, is, you know, like the story of them going to Burger King. But the way the story is told is so ill. Well, it was a Wednesday. Me and boss hog was kind of hungry. Like two eggs and a sloppy slice of lettuce and a glass of milk and some cookies. Spotted in the mist with the BK logo. What we said, well, what do you know? This chick thought I was trying to play fly because I had a pair of blue jeans on. Young girl, won't you take my order? She said, yeah, yeah but right, right now, now I'm sort of busy. So Don't you see me trying to put this band-aid on my finger? I mean, I think also on all three of those albums in different ways, the use of samples and the way the samples are flipped and musically, they're just so, so good. I think that's another reason why it's impacted me so much is that I know the kind of the truth of the fact that there can't be any filler on a real album, like on a great album. A great album, you put it in, you press play, and it has you for the duration of the album. And that's been probably the most influential thing for me on the making of these mixtapes. And additionally, my album that I'm producing right now, which will be my sort of first proper debut album, that idea that you put it on, you press play, and it grabs you and holds you for the entire experience. I think that's something that's been lost in the kind of single-driven iTunes shuffle culture, as Rich Nichols, rest in peace, used to call it, way that we now listen to and consume music is that you don't get a whole experience in the way that you used to. And I think that people are missing out on that because that was one of the best things about it. Put it on, it was like a movie. You sat there and you listened to it <laughs> and you were there in that world for the whole time. Biddy's in the BK lounge. All they do is beg and they scrounge. Biddy's in the BK lounge. The Biddy's in the BK lounge. It's sort of funny, as the producer, I am 
not specifically mentioning the producers of these things, but that is essential to note. Prince Paul was the one who created this idea of the skit famously, and it sort of was a, a happenstance kind of thing, as I've been told by the members of De La Soul and by Paul himself. But there's something magical that happened when you got this mind of Prince Paul, who I think was also somebody that really loved that narrative side of things. And then you have a, a group like De La who is lyrically able to cover sort of any topic. And then, you know, you have Paul's just strictly his production ability, which is second to none. He would be another person that I would rank amongst my most influential producers. And I don't think he actually gets that recognition as often as he should. Another one would be Large Professor, who obviously appears on Midnight Marauders. But these are guys who have such an incredible understanding of the subtleties of producing that they're unrivaled. But, you know, maybe it's lost a little bit on people that love Three Feet High and Rising or whatever, love the low-end theory over Midnight Marauders. And probably, the irony is, I probably love low-end theory as an album more than Midnight Marauders, but I just think that Midnight Marauders had more of an impact on me in terms of the structure of the album and just the way that it feels to listen to it. Blah. Oh, man, this album sucks. Man, it's starting to sound just like MC Shans. I don't like it. I don't like yo, it. Yo, I know that Tim, who do you worship, man? You know, some more devilish shit or something. Yeah. Afros, that Afros got a slamming beat, but what are they saying? Yeah, Yo, cool. Afros is whack. I don't like it's it. It's really cool, man. I don't like it. Yo, man, why don't you stop? Rocker. Oh, man. Listen, listen, I'm Henry I'm the leader. Now, put the tape back in and give me the talks. And in Ice Cube's case, you've got DJ Pooh, who, again, not widely mentioned as one of the great producers of all time. But man, oh man, like <laughs> the beats that that guy was responsible for are incredible. You know, I think that all of those producers really shaped my understanding of production and particularly the subtlety. I think the narrative and the skits and all that, you know, particularly with Paul, is one thing. But the subtlety of the production and the way it makes you feel, I think Large Professor is another master of that at having really kind of emotional musical elements, but a beat that just knocks. So you get this like... It's like the craziest combination of things to have something that like moves you in your gut but makes your head nod at the same time. I think that's true for all of those producers. Midnight Marauders, obviously Large Pro only really produces, I think, maybe one track on there. But you have the Uma, which would be Tribe and Dilla. But you have Q-Tip and Ali Shaheed. And the debate sort of continues to rage over who did what. I have some insider information that tells me that different people had hands in different things. So, you know, I specifically credit A Tribe Called Quest as a whole for the production on all those albums. But you've got the mind of Q-Tip as, I would say he's the creative mastermind, just in terms of the fact that he was often the one bringing the records and the samples and the ideas to the table. And having worked with him now and knowing what a creative genius he is, really. I think that's another one where, when you think of the fact that he was one of my favorite MCs, and back then not realizing that he was also the person responsible for a lot of that music is a pretty incredible thing. And not for nothing, but Q-Tip is also responsible for a lot of my favorite Nas music and Mob Deep music. You know, like, so the things that I love, Q-Tip has had a hand in a lot of them. Damn, so I, am I supposed to make a nut? Police looking at the end of Thor microscope In LA, everybody and they mama sells dope They trying to stop it So what the fuck can I do to make a profit? Catch a flight to St. Louis, that's cool Cause nobody knows 
I think that there's a P-Funk kind of bed for a lot of those tracks. My favorite track on that whole album is actually My Summer Vacation, which I forget, it might even be Atomic Dog. I'd have to actually go and look to remember what song that samples. But yeah, I mean, there's a West Coast funk component to a lot of those tracks that gives it a certain kind of knock and that was pervasive in the air at that time on the west coast digital underground another of my favorites like i could have easily replaced death certificate with sex packets as one of the most influential tracks the sound of digital underground sex packets and the sound of ice cube death certificate is a lot of that funk and that was really the foundation of West Coast hip hop, the funky worm sound that appears in many, many, many West Coast tracks. And I think is somewhere on Death Certificate, or if it's not, it probably is close by. I think also a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, such as Be True to the Game and Colorblind. I definitely remember some of it feeling familiar and you know, some of those experiences that he's talking about were things that were, if not right outside my door, not that far away. But then you have him talking about A Bird in the Hand where he's talking about politics and sort of his place in America. And all of those kinds of things, like it felt like social commentary to me and it felt like righteous. And so that was, I think, what made me really gravitate towards it. I remember in Jeff's thing, I actually forgot that he had also included that album, but I remember for him, the track that was with the Korean store owner that like had a big impact on him. For me, I remember Horny Little Devil was a song that I had to kind of come to terms with a little bit. And again, it was this kind of like failure to understand that made me understand it, I guess. Failure to understand, referring back to the Prince story, that made me understand it but not be affected by it. I remember in particular one time where I was walking around my high school rapping Paris, the devil made me do it. And there was a, a black girl who was a friend of mine who kind of heard me rapping that and laughed and said, you know, he's talking about you, right? And I kind of looked back at her and said, no, he's not. <laughs> and kept it moving. Because again, it was like, for me, I sort of saw these issues from within and then also maybe from sort of like if the camera pans up and you see the whole landscape. Well, look here. I'd to get up and do my thing. Okay, well, let me kind of move these things around here, you know. I just get up and do my thing, yeah. You understand? Uh, can, can, I, can I really get into it? Yeah. Can I, can, I get in, can I get into the thing, really? Yeah. Moving? Yeah. Doing it? Yeah. Can I get into it? Yeah. Can I get into all our things? Yeah. We're ready to get into it. Yeah. I'm going to count it off, Jab. It wasn't like it was that linear, I mean, because I wasn't really producing until much later. So I think these things just were in my consciousness as things that I loved. And I think there was a reason that I loved them, which is that I, I just love stories. You know, I love movies as well. I just love immersing myself in an experience and really being surrounded by it, helping me understand that world. So I think with my stuff, it was just one of those things where when I, starting with that Nas tape, which I guess was the blueprint, but it's continued to evolve. And you know, the other thing is that the moment where I started making these, this particular kind of mixtape, there wasn't really anybody else doing anything like that. So I felt like I had to kind of slowly tease it into the mix. There couldn't be too much of that or it would distract you from the music. You know, the, the narrative had to be something that helped the music move along as opposed to the other way around. I think that that's evolved for me as time has gone on and the audience for these things has grown. You know, you get to a James Brown mixtape, which I did last year, and there's much more narrative in there. There's much more kind of biography and 
documentary to that tape because I feel like now I've sort of defined this as my sound and my style and the people that come to hear things from me, they want that. So I think that it's evolved over time, but for me, it's just always been something that I love. Like I love telling stories and I love hearing stories and I like the idea that things are connected. And I like helping to tease out those connections because, again, it's like, you know, I hear the message and I want to write down the lyrics and give it to my dad and, sh and show him how this is Crosby, Stills and Nash or Bob Dylan 2.0. And when I do The Messengers and I combine Fela Kuti and Bob Marley and Bob Dylan, three artists that at first glance you would say, well, they have nothing to do with each other. But suddenly in the way that you can tease those stories together and musically make it make sense, you could also start to see how, well, oh, well, actually these three guys are the same. They all used music to convey a message. And I think that there's just another layer of importance and meaning when you can do that, when you can accomplish connecting those things that would otherwise seem like they aren't connected. Because for me, that's what hip hop has been. Like it's been something that connects all different sides of the world together in a way that is powerful and you know unites people and obviously there's the version of hip-hop that mainstream America knows and what they hear on the radio and all of that but I mean yes that's hip-hop that's a part of hip-hop but the more important part of hip-hop to me is the fact that it has made these connections and made people from different experiences understand each other and continues to and I think that telling the stories and digging deeper into why somebody did this or what they listened to when they were growing growing up because that's actually the, the way that I begin every interview that I do with every artist is what was playing in your house when you were a kid because I want to know their story I want to know how did they arrive at the place where they made this music what influenced them and I think if you show what influenced them and then you can show what they influenced then suddenly you're creating a historical kind of timeline and showing the importance of these things like this is culture this is passed down from generation to generation and it's important I think hip-hop matters because it is the most influential cultural form that the world has ever seen. And I think that that sounds like a big statement, but it won't in another hundred years because hip-hop has seeped its way into every other kind of music to cultures all over the globe. And I think that the core idea of hip-hop, of taking things and reinventing them, is an idea that never gets old and will continue to become an important, influential idea as time goes on, because there's nothing new under the sun. So I think that that, to me, is why hip-hop matters so much. And obviously, you add to that the fact that as a form that has been so influential, it has brought so many different kinds of people together strictly by way of hip-hop. And that also is a really important part of it. I'm blowing up like you thought I would Call the crib, same number, same hood The 